In Session with Dr. Farid Hulaku. Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number 310-441-0555. Before I jump into the books, I uh, just wanted to say a big thank you to everyone who came out for the cruise this past weekend, just got back this morning, had a great time, got to meet a bunch of lovely people from all over. I was expecting mostly from Southern California, but we did have people from Canada and even from uh, Nashville, Tennessee, who were with us and had a great time. Also, a big thank you to DJ Alex and, of course, Commercial Travel, who helped uh, really organize everything for the cruise. So had a great time and look forward to doing another one soon and hope that more people will be able to join us again for that one coming up. But again, a big thank you for everyone who was there. I really had a great time uh, this weekend, and maybe we'll get a chance to talk more about it on maybe tonight's show, on future shows. But a big thank you to all of you who joined uh, me and joined us. Before I do the summary for the book for the past week, the book for this week, I really like the title. We'll see how good the book is. I haven't read it before. It's called Moonwalking with Einstein by Joshua Foer. Moonwalking with Einstein, The Art and Science of Remembering Everything by uh, Joshua Foer. So I don't know exactly. Um, the book is about, I think, remembering or th- tools we can use to remember better. But uh, as I said, I have not read the book yet. The title and the cover caught my attention. I know they say don't judge a book by its cover, but I definitely did and uh, got this one. So we'll see how that is. But let's do the summary of the book for this past week, which was No More Mr. Nice Guy by Dr. Robert Glover. No More Mr. Nice Guy. And I'd read this for the first time, I think, close to a decade ago. And it was nice to read it again because I definitely could relate to a lot of the book back then and still. So um, to me, I found it very interesting, and I'm glad I got to read it again. And if you haven't read it already, I'd, I'd recommend this book. Um, so no more Mr. Nice Guy. And when we hear that title and we hear Mr. Nice Guy, probably a lot of images come to our mind, some good and some bad. Uh, we hear sometimes the idea of last uh, nice guys finish last, and this book in a way would uh, agree with that sentiment that being the nice guy that he describes is not a good thing. And so I'll explain what he means by nice guy because being nice doesn't sound like a bad thing. And of course, it's not bad to be nice, but the type of nice guy he's talking about actually isn't nice. He might look nice or it might appear that he is acting in nice ways, but there's a lot more going on underneath that explains his behavior. So the goal of the book isn't to make you the opposite of nice, isn't to make you 
a jerk, which maybe someone will think, well, if I'm not going to be a nice guy, does that mean I have to be a jerk or a mean guy? And absolutely not. Um, the opposite of something unhealthy isn't the other extreme of unhealthy. It's somewhere in between. So that's what we're, we're looking at in this book is how to get people to go away from being nice in a way that hurts themselves, doesn't get their needs met, and they don't live a happy life to a place where they actually own their own needs, their wants, their desires, and become who they want to be and actually who they can be. Um, so let's look at what a nice guy is. So he talks about the characteristics of nice guys, and he shares lots of stories of individuals so you get an idea of what it might look like in someone's life who is a nice guy. Uh, but he talks about the characteristics of nice guys early in the book. So to begin with, he says nice guys are givers. And again, this could sound good on the surface, but it's that they give in order to make other people like them or get their approval, and they have actually a hard time receiving. So it's not a genuine giving. Um, they're also fixers and caretakers. They try to solve problems, or they might even seek out people who have problems so they can feel needed. And sometimes they offer their help or their solutions without being asked. They just give it because that makes them feel good. They also seek approval from others. So they're very much almost preoccupied and obsessed with other people liking them, gaining their approval, making sure they don't see them in a negative way. And related to that, they avoid conflict. They don't want to say things that people might not want to hear. They don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to voice their disagreement because that could create a conflict and they're trying to avoid conflict at all costs. They also believe that they must hide their perceived flaws and mistakes. So I have to look perfect. I have to show myself in a certain way because any shortcoming that becomes exposed, then that experience. It, uh, expresses that I am not good enough. And underneath the Mr. Nice Guy persona that they put forward is a feeling of shame that he talks about in the book, that they don't feel that they are okay. They don't feel that they are enough. They don't feel that they are uh, lovable. And so because of that, they can't let someone see any of their flaws or mistakes, and they have to try to cover those things up. Also, they try to seek the right way, quote unquote, to do things, meaning they try to do everything right, not do things in a bad or wrong way, or in a way that someone could say was wrong. Uh, they also repress their feelings. They've learned that feelings can get in the way of them trying to get the approval or being this nice guy. And if they express them, sometimes people don't like it. So they learn to repress, suppress, and numb their feelings so that they uh, don't get in the way as they might see it. They also try to be different from their fathers oftentimes. So the report having fathers who are uh, angry or unavailable or passive or alcoholics or different types of things. And they actually choose, rather than learning to be different from them in a good way, to almost be opposite of them. So they saw them as being so negative that they wanted to become the opposite. Um, they're also oftentimes more comfortable around women than men. And he talks about this a little bit of some ideas he has of what's going on in society that could contribute to this, but they'll find that they don't like being around men as much as they prefer being around women. And they also have a hard time making their own needs a priority. They, they don't think that someone else would care to have their needs met or to try to meet their needs. And so they try to not make them a priority and also in that way almost not have needs or try to deal with their needs on their own. They have a very hard time asking for help 
or asking for what they want or need from someone else. And then often when they're in a relationship, they make their partner the emotional center. So everything revolves around their partner. Making them happy means they are happy, and that's the only goal that they have in life is, is making them feel good. So how does uh, a nice guy develop, or how do we see the childhood of someone who becomes a nice guy? Of course, there's not going to be one single path, but he talks about some themes that he has noticed. And Dr. Glover, um, he talks about himself being a recovering Mr. Nice Guy himself, that he himself was one of these nice guys. And he's run groups for years. I don't know if he still does them, but he's he did them for many years. Um, they were called No More Mr. Nice Guy groups, where people who were like this, who were these nice guys, would come to work on themselves and to change. So he has a lot of experience with this type of personality. And so when he talks about the childhoods they've often had, he finds that there's a few themes that happen. One is there is definitely uh, a childhood where they did not get their needs met and validated for being who they were. And because of that, they learned to try to be someone else to get the approval and the love they were seeking. Very often, the father was not very present, or if they were, they were a negative force. And the son might have learned to either be the mom's confidant or someone they get close to or to try to get their needs met or to make sure they didn't upset the mom anymore. So he talks about actually how uh, there's a monogamous relationship that nice guys sometimes have with their mothers that extends past childhood into adulthood and could interfere with them creating close and intimate relationships with women, even when they actually enter those relationships. Um, So we find this type of person who's learned to hide who they are because they don't think they'll be loved if they show their flaws or show that they're not okay in some way. And they want to fix things and make things better. So he talks about the nice guy paradigm that gets developed after their childhood. And he describes it in this way. If I can hide my flaws and become what I think others want me to be, then I will be loved, get my needs met, and have a problem-free life. So I have to hide my flaws and become what I think others want me to be, then I will be loved. And so this is what we see in the nice guy. They don't want to have any flaws or shortcomings, and they try to be what other people or they think other people want them to be always nice, always kind, doing what they want them to do, um, being what they think they want them to be. And they think this is the path to get them loved, but unfortunately, it's not. Now, as I mentioned before, this Mr. Nice Guy, in a way, nice can be put in quotes because as he describes it, they're not actually nice. And he talks about how these people aren't genuinely nice when we look at some of the behaviors that they do. And this is something we always want to keep in mind with any behavior, action uh, that we see in anyone. And of course, especially at ourselves, we want to think about this. The intention is what matters. The what is less important than the why. If you give someone a compliment, it could be because you genuinely care about them and you genuinely think what you're saying. Or it could be because you're trying to manipulate them to get them on your side. Or it could be because... You're a nice guy, as Dr. Glover describes it, and you think you have to say that to get their approval and to get them to like you and to get loved by them. So the same behavior can have very different intentions and motivations, and that can actually determine what that thing really was. The why can determine 
what we're talking about. But how are nice guys, the ones he's describing in this book, actually not nice? Well, for one, he says they're dishonest. They hide their mistakes. They try to avoid conflict. They say things they don't mean. They take away their own feelings and thoughts to avoid conflict and to make people like them. So they're actually very dishonest. And related to that, they're also very secretive, which is not nice. They hide things. They don't uh, say things as they are. Um, in other ways, they can be very manipulative that he talks about. So because they have a hard time expressing what they actually want and need, they find manipulative ways to try to get their point across or to express how they feel or to say what they want. Also, they're very controlling. Although their niceness seems to come from a good place, oftentimes it's to try to control the people around them to get them to do what they want. And as giving as they might appear, they very often have these covert contracts, unspoken rules that they're giving to actually get something back. So it's not actually giving with no strings attached, a genuine kindness. It's really actually to get something back, to get something in return. Also, they are passive aggressive. They try to repress a lot of their feelings, especially their anger. And because of that, and the feeling that they shouldn't ever be angry or express anger, they do express it in a passive aggressive way. They show it without trying to show it, but you still feel it. And you feel it even in a worse way because if it's directly expressed, you can do something about it. But when we have passive aggressive expressions, it makes it very hard for that to lead to something productive. So these nice guys, as nice as they might seem, they can be very passive aggressive and even as he mentions, full of rage. Because when they keep giving and giving and they think they're doing it out of genuine kindness, but actually it's because they want something in return, they start to express or experience a deep rage within them. And so people who are nice guys in this way very often are very angry people. There are a lot of resentment that is built up between them. And there's more ways that they are not always necessarily so nice because as we see the kindness that they are showing is not actually coming from a place of genuine kindness and being nice. There's a reason behind it. So we see that at the core, these nice guys have a feeling of toxic shame, that I'm not good enough, that I am unlovable, and I have to be something else in order to get my needs met, in order to be loved. But what they find is that it doesn't work because when we don't express who we are, when we just are a caricature of a person, I'm just always a nice, good person, people can't actually connect with us and they can't create a deep relationship with us. And because of that, we won't get our needs met. And that is a big problem. Now, an interesting point he brings up in this uh, book is that very often these nice guys are the type of people who will say they really want a serious, connected, emotional relationship but you find that they usually are in dissatisfying ones that aren't very close and connected. And, and he says that oftentimes they're balancing a fear of vulnerability with a fear of abandonment. So because the nice guy thinks that deep down inside he is not good, he is not lovable, if someone saw all his flaws and imperfections, they would leave him or definitely not love him, he has a fear of vulnerability and closeness. Because if I let you in all the way, then you're going to see all of me and I don't think you're going to like what you see and you're going to go. And at the same time, they have a fear of abandonment. 
They don't want to be alone. There's a very strong fear of not having anyone. So they tend to create these relationships where it's somewhere in between. It's never quite satisfying. It's never quite close. There's always some problems in the relationship. But in that way, they can create a relationship that doesn't force them to be too close, but also they're not completely alone. And so very often they are in the wrong types of relationships. And importantly, they're in the wrong type of relationship with themselves as well. So throughout the book, he first describes the nice guy and what that means and gives different vignettes and stories of what a nice guy can look like. But then he goes through steps and there's activities that the nice guy can do to help to break free from the way that they are living. And as is true in any kind of change that is deep in our personality, it's going to be uncomfortable for people to go through this. And that's why he has the support groups because he knows that it's hard to go through it alone. And he talks about that. And he also talks about the importance of men connecting with other men. And, And very often he sees that these nice guys are used to and also more comfortable bringing around women and have a hard time connecting to men and not only have a hard time connecting to other men, they have a hard time connecting to their own masculinity because they've somehow disowned it. They learned at a young age that this is a bad part of themselves, that I shouldn't be this way. That, for example, my father was bad because of his masculinity, so I'm going to completely disown mine and that's the way that I'm going to get women to like me, but that doesn't work. Um, So he does outline different ways that you can start to reclaim your masculinity, reclaim who you are um, throughout the book, which I think can be helpful. There was parts where I didn't completely agree with how he described society and its role in in creating the nice guys. But overall, I think he does a great job of outlining uh, what a nice guy is and what has contributed to it in different ways um, and ways that you can break free from that. So if you think you might be a nice guy or you know someone who might be fit this uh, paradigm of the nice guy, I think it's a great book to check out. No More Mr. Nice Guy by Dr. Robert Glover. Um, I read it for the second time and I did enjoy it and realized that I, I'd seen things in myself that I saw differently this time around but still have room to grow. And I'll mention the book again for this week, Moonwalking with Einstein by Joshua Foer. Uh, the Art and Science of Remembering Everything. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Yes, hi. Uh, hi, Dr. Holakwi. Hi, thanks for calling. Thank you for having me. Sure. Um, um, I had a question uh, about my daughter, who is two and a half years old. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to give you some information about the issues that make me worried about her. Uh, and my main question would be, um, you know, if these are normal issues for a two-and-a-half-year-old toddler or these are signs of uh, some sort of uh, an underlying problem that we need to take care of or we need to seek um, specialist care uh, for that. Okay. Sure, uh, go ahead. First, yeah, first of all is that uh, she's a bit shy. 
um, she's always been like this. And uh, because of this, she doesn't like um, joining um, other kids um, in, in uh, group plays, group games. For example, at a daycare, when other kids are doing something, she's doing something else at the other corner of the room, especially if they the other kids are involved in some sort of physical activity like jumping and dancing and playing with the ball. He never joins them. Um, mm-hmm. If if the group activity is about painting or something uh, to do like um, um, by sitting at a desk, she will do that. Otherwise, she won't. Um, the second thing that the second issue that we have with her is um, her problem with English. Um, she started talking in Farsi very soon, and she picked it up quickly. And she's very good talking in Farsi, much better than a three-year-old. She uses long sentences, she uses adverbs, adjectives. Um, she's very good at it. Uh, but when it comes to English, um, although she knows a lot of words and she understands her teachers at the daycare, um, she only communicates using single English words. Mm-hmm. Um, she never uses any sentences. I'm not sure if she doesn't know how to make a sentence in English or she is not interested in using that language. And her communication is only limited to where, to the times that she has to communicate. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the second thing. Okay. Um, the third problem that uh, we didn't have this, and it all started a month ago, or two months ago. Oh, and I, I should add this, that uh, a month ago, um, our second baby was born. Okay. That's so a, yeah. a month before the baby was born, my daughter, who was, um, who used to be a very, like, um, easy kid to deal with, started to have these tantrums that are not predictable for us. There's no way that we can predict the situation and avoid it because she can have tantrums over anything and everything. She can just wake up in the morning and right after waking up, start crying and screaming for breakfast, you know, without Mm -hmm. even asking normally. Or we have some rules that she was okay with the rules, like you can have chocolate after you come back from daycare in the afternoon, but she suddenly wakes up in the morning asking for chocolate and you know she used to have that like routine for months and she she accepted that rule but now she's fighting it Mm -hmm. and we have a lot of these issues you know it's every day it's like uh, i don't know i can say like 20 30 times of these sort of tantrums that we don't know how to avoid you're saying Um, 20 tantrums a day yeah if, if she is at home all day, like um, in a weekend, yes, it could be that. It, she, it can be like con- constantly hmm. over anything, you know. Okay. So we, we don't have normal, like, communication anymore. Uh-huh. Um, and um, we, um, two months ago, we also started to have problems with her sleep as well, Um before that, she was sleeping through the night without any problem. Uh, suddenly, she started waking up a lot, and it seems that she's having these night terrors. Um, 
is mm. not really awake. She is kind of sleeping but screaming, and we can't calm her down. Um, I try to spend more time with her during the past like few nights, and it seems that um, she is sleeping a bit better, which I hope is going to continue. Um, but, um, yeah, that was something that we dealt with for um, a lot of weeks. So these are the things that she's having, and I'm not sure if these are normal for her age or these are, you know, signs of something else that, mm-hmm. you know, we, we should be careful yeah. about. Well, I mean, you know, when we're looking at her age, we also want to look at the circumstances with the baby being born, I think you said about yeah. a month ago. That's also a big change, and even for a kid can feel like a trauma you know, to have this big change. Yeah, sure, so we have to yeah. be aware of that too, that that could be very, um, very much related to what we're seeing her exhibit right now. Because what I say, is it normal? It, it could be. When you said 20 tantrums, that just sounded a little odd to me. And maybe it depends on what we're talking about tantrums. Because, you know, usually when they people use the word tantrums, they mean, you know, just yelling and screaming and uncontrollably in a way where you can't do anything and have to let them just let the tantrum run its course. And it could take a few yeah. minutes. So if you're she's having 20 of those a day, that, that seems almost hard for me to imagine, but that means she's just constantly in a rageful state. Is that how it is on those days? Not all the days, okay. but we have days like that, yes. Okay, okay. So, I mean, there's clearly a lot of anger there, which, um, again, having the new baby could be a part of that. We also know that tantruming in around two and three years of age, is, can be. it becomes more frequent. And so it's something uh-huh. that parents, we talk about the, the terrible twos sometimes, but it's really two and three. And of course, it doesn't mean tantruming has to stop after those ages. Um, but it could be some of that. So we want to be aware that she could be having that. Now, let me go back a bit because you talked about her being shy and playing alone. Uh, and you said, especially when it comes to like, physical activity, does she yeah. do engage in physical activity? You talk about physical activity in the group. But if she's alone or at home, does she enjoy physical activities and playing and jumping and things like that? Um, she does, but it's not her favorite. Her favorite is sitting on a sofa and looking at a book, mm-hmm. you know, or doing some sort of games at a table, you know, some card games, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. So physical activities is not her first choice. We have to encourage her okay. to do that. Okay. And does she communicate a lot with you guys as far as... Does she enjoy communication? Does she seem to seek that out, or does she prefer just being by herself alone? No, no, no. She enjoys communicating. Okay. And, oh, I forgot to tell you this, that her problem, her communication problem is much worse in an English-setting environment. When she's surrounded by Farsi-speaking people, she doesn't have much problem. Mm-hmm. Um, she just She's just a bit quieter than normal, for okay. just a bit. So but it, when it yeah. comes to English-speaking people, she she tries to avoid them. We have mm. English-speaking friends, and when we are having them around, she doesn't want to be close to them. She just wants to leave the room, you know? Okay. Now, but she's not likely yeah. to okay. So in yeah. the home, are you guys just speaking Farsi then? Yes. Okay, well, I mean, we might want to think about changing that so she gets more comfort and practice with that. Uh-huh. 
because you know I, I get the feeling overall your child is anxious you know we have to be it seems like she might be having some anxiety but um you know talking english seems like it's not it doesn't feel like home for her it doesn't feel comfortable and so when she's doing that it doesn't feel right so i would suggest you guys speaking and and you know sometimes parents are concerned that if they have a very strong accent that their kid picks up their accent but yeah. you speak quite well and i don't see any issue with that anyway but if we're having that issue i think it's going to be important now is the reason why you guys don't speak english is because you want to make sure she learns farsi yeah we just that we speak Farsi at home and she will pick, pick, pick English up at daycare and later at school. But I do read in books in English to okay, her. Good. That's what she wants me to do. I used to translate English books to Farsi and read, it to, read yeah. them to her. But um, a few months ago, she started asking me to read them in English. Yeah, she, you know, I think she, she needs that from you. So, you know, it's not... Yeah. And I'm not talking black or white that now you never speak a word of Farsi to her again. But I think it's worth thinking about that, we, you know, she's trying to go to school in a English environment and she needs to learn English to, to do better there. And we want to help her with that. So I would suggest at least making it a, a little bit more of both in the home so she gets more used to that. Because even the way it's becoming, it's almost like just foreign people speak this language. So it's not a very mm-hmm. comfortable language for her. It doesn't feel comfortable. But if she sees you guys speaking and talking to her in that language, I think it could help make it less, one, make it less foreign and scary, and also, two, give her more practice with it because she doesn't have a lot of practice with that. Yeah. So that would be one suggestion I would make is that in the home at least becoming a little bit more bilingual and, and not just insisting on the Farsi and thinking, okay, well, she'll learn English somewhere else. We want to make sure she learns the Farsi, but it could be affecting her. So that would be one one suggestion um, to have. And even she's asking for it, just read to me in English. Don't read to me in Farsi. So we want to, you know, accept that. Um, and related to the being shy, of course, we don't know for sure. I can't say it, it's it's definitely one thing or the other, but it could be that your child is more introverted, even the way you're describing her, that she likes to kind of read and be on her own or doing those kind of more solitary things, although she enjoys communication too, so it's not not at all. So it could be a social anxiety, so we want to keep an eye on that. Is it that she has a hard time in groups and gets nervous and has, has a difficult time interacting, especially when you say it's the physical part? Is there some fear or anxiety of getting hurt or something like that happening? But it could also be that she is more introverted. She enjoys being more with herself. And so we want to be open to the fact that maybe that's the way she prefers. And of course, we won't say she doesn't have to have friends or doesn't have to be social. But we want to make sure she feels okay that way. Because very often parents think, well, it's better to be social. They need to be talking. They have to have lots of friends. They have to be able to give speeches and whatever else we might think and want for our kids. And so we push them to be different from what they are. And so I want you to be aware of that possibility that your child might be more of an introvert. And so whatever it is, we want to let your kid be who she is and be loved and feel okay to be who and how she is. So if she's more to herself and enjoys more solitary things, we give her that space and that that right to do that. We might still uh, create situations where she can be social, so we don't want to completely neglect that. But I want you to be aware that it's possible your child, they have different personalities and sometimes they can be more introverted and we want to make sure we give her that space. Now, we definitely have a lot more to get into and we're at a commercial break. So just hang on the line and after the break, we'll talk a bit more, okay? 
Okay, thank you. All right, sure, thank you. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Before the break, we're with a caller. Let's go back to her. Caller, are you still there? Hi. Okay. So you were talking about your daughter who's two and a half, and you just had a, another baby about a month ago. Um, yes. And so some you were concerned about some issues that she's having. So we talked a bit about the uh, playing alone or her being shy, and that's a, that's a big one for me. Shy can mean a lot of things. There could be anxiety and social anxiety. And we never want to shame a kid for being shy. It's something that happens a lot that you shouldn't be shy. You should go to the birthday party and be playing with all the kids. But we don't want to make them feel bad about that. And there's a book called Quiet by Susan Cain, The Power of Introverts. Um, And again, I don't want to assume your daughter is that yet, but it's something for you to keep in mind uh, to think about that, that if you have that kind of a daughter, you want to make her feel okay and recognize that it's, it's fine for her to be that way. Now, if it's a social anxiety that gives her distress and doesn't feel good, we don't want to bother bother her. And of course, uh, having a one-month-old is a full-time job, so I can uh, hear that I think you're, st- <laughs> you're, you're doing your job as we speak, which I can understand is, is taking a lot of time, and that can also be related to some of the issues we're dealing with uh, when it comes to your daughter, that uh, she's yeah. probably getting a lot less of you and from you than she wants and what she was used to. Yeah, I think that's true because it all started a month before the baby was born and it was at a time that I was feeling so exhausted and tired mm-hmm. and I couldn't do things that I used to do for her, like yeah. her bedtime routine, for example. And that was my guess mm-hmm. that maybe she's not sleeping well because um, she's going to bed with some sort of, you know, unhappiness. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the way she's reacting to yeah definitely i mean the, yeah. the unhappiness is definitely going to be there so maybe a upset feeling an anger and maybe that's some of the tantrums and also just about not about unhappy but a, you know routine and especially a calming routine like that being with you is going to be very soothing and make her go to bed with a nicer feeling and maybe when she doesn't get that, she's going to feel more anxious. There's going to be more of that. And, and even could it could be related to the sleep terrors you were describing. But so we can't underestimate, underestimate the impact of that. The reason why we do bedtime routines for everyone, but especially for kids, is it gives them a good feeling. It feels nice. They know what to expect. And that feels good to them. And we take something like that away. It's going to be hurtful for any kid. But especially if your child is more anxious, like it seems like she might be, then those things might even be more important important for her the impact is even more as far as you and her uh the father of your baby so how is your own emotional makeup would you describe you or him as anxious um i'm not a relaxed person but i'm not like anxious over everything and anything it's not Mm -hmm. like that okay how about him yeah i probably have a bit of anxiety Mm -hmm. in my character yeah Okay, and how and about your her, husband? Her father as well, so we have it, yes. Okay, so yeah, I mean, I get, you know, it seems like you have a more anxious child, and so she's gonna she's acting in that way, and so she's getting even more affected, and two and a half years is kind of a, a decent age, but it's still very young. She's still a baby herself who wants to be yeah. babied and taken care of, and so we have to recognize that this is going to be 
This is going to be challenging and that's tough. And this is this is where parenting gets really hard when you have two kids, especially, and um, you know one of them is is acting out in a certain way. But we have to realize that her acting out isn't just for no reason or to get really mad at her about it. How do you guys tend to respond with to her tra- her tantruming? But we we try not to um, we try to neglect her when she is um, in that crying mode. But the problem is that sometimes it's not easy to neglect it because she starts with crying. Mm-hmm. You know? It doesn't. It's not like she asks something. We say no, and she starts crying. She starts asking by crying. So in those situations, I find it more helpful that I start explaining to her that you know what if you're talking to me like that, I'm not going to listen to you. You have to talk in a normal voice. Mm-hmm. Now, before um, I would go to something like that, I would also mm-hmm. validate her feelings. So yeah, I can I can see you're upset or I understand you're really angry. So make sure uh-huh. first you, you validate the feeling or at least show her that you recognize the feeling. Um, uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know, you're right. When it comes to tantruming, and, and I know you're using the word neglect. My guess is you mean more like ignore. So you're not uh, neglecting her, but you're trying to ignore that behavior, yeah. which we have to do. And it, it's tough. And, and even it's more than just ignore. It's also letting them know they need time to cool off. And this is kind of where... Uh, timeouts really are supposed to be used. People think of timeout as a punishment. Well, you've been bad, go to timeout. But it's more about you need some time to cool down. Uh, you know, clearly you're overwhelmed with emotion. So you can even talk to her about that. Not while she's tantruming, but at another time. And she's still young, so she might not get all of it, but she, she seems like she's verbal enough where she might get some of it. And you could tell her, you know, sometimes you get excited. And you can even teach her things like taking deep breaths, um, to try to calm herself down okay. and things that she can do in those moments. And again, you want to have that conversation when she's not tantruming because you can't really have a, a conversation at that point. She's just going to be so riled up. So, you know, you can talk to her about that, but it, it seems like she, we're dealing with an anxious child who is also very angry, probably more with you because you're not as much available as you used to be. Now, is dad becoming more available and spending more time with her? Uh, I'm, try- I'm trying, yes. At the beginning, it was not easy, but now I'm, I'm managing to, uh, you know, do whatever baby, need- baby needs and then give the baby to her dad because my daughter prefers me over mm-hmm. her dad. <laughs> sure. So, and I try to, to spend more time with her, especially with bedtime routine that we used to do before. Well, um, good. Yes, I'm trying to do that, yes. Sure. Well, good, yeah. So you're trying to make the best of that, which is good, and this is where we, we always say... Yes, she's probably going to always prefer you um, to dad. That's just kind of the reality. But dad can can kind of come in and take some of that load and give her extra attention and time to hopefully to to limit a little bit what she's feeling, which we have to recognize. It's difficult for her to go from having all of you and having all of dad to having a lot less of you. Because, of course, it's not just that she's sharing you 50-50. The baby needs you. Uh, even more than that 50%. Yeah. So she's really lost a lot. So we want to recognize that 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 she's going through that difficulty. When it comes to the tantruming, like I said, yes, we have to try to ignore it, let it, let it run its course. Um, but we want to communicate with her that we understand she's upset, we understand she's having a hard time. Um, let me ask you something about her as a baby. What, what kind of baby was she like as far as her temperament? Not easy. Not she easy. Was, That's why uh, my guess. Yeah. Crier yeah. From day one. Yeah. And she was having a lot of issues. She was 
she wasn't even six pounds when she was born. Mm. And uh, they used vacuum to bring her out. Oh, wow, okay. And, um, and then um, she was dealing with eczema, so mm-hmm. she couldn't sleep, you know, easily. So I had to hold her in my arms a lot of nights for her to just be able to sleep. And she was colic from one month old until mm. three and a half. Um, so, and yeah. then when I started solid food, she she showed some, you know, allergies to food. So, and she's having these, like, anaphylactic attacks. Mm-hmm. So she, she has experienced, like, horrible moments with, uh, with the food. Oh, wow. That she's okay. allergic to. Yeah. She remembers those. Mm. You know, she talks about it. She, she always tells that I cannot have peanut butter because if mm. I have, I, I can't breathe well. So she knows that and she remembers those. So yeah, yeah well. she, she went through many difficult days. Um, yeah, it sounds like it. So we have a, you know, and already her temperament, I think, was anxious in already, but then those experiences are going to be, definitely have a big impact. So we have to be aware of that. That's very painful. And those seem like they, even those night terrors you talk about, some of those traumas could be related to it too. Um, but the reason I was asking about how she was as a baby is the way you're describing it, it seems like um, she has what we can call a low frustration tolerance, meaning that when she starts to feel something, it really either physically or emotionally, it could really impact her deeply or it becomes really strong. And so she kind of reacts yeah. to it. And that's yeah. you know how she is. The good news is as we get older, we can try to work on this, our distress tolerance and become more able to tolerate pain. And I don't mean in the way of like we like pain, but then when things don't go our way or we feel uncomfortable, we can be okay with it. But it seems like your daughter doesn't handle that well. So sometimes she wakes up and you're saying she just already starts what feels like tantruming. It's just that she that pain and discomfort she has feels very strong to her. And so she's reacting to it. And, and so that's tough for you guys as parents because her reactions can be very extreme and you know not feel very good and maybe even feel disproportionate to what she's going through and sometimes there can be something that she's trying to do to get something from you guys and is exaggerating what she feels but uh, you know it could be good to realize that it just could be that she feels things really strongly or that the pain affects her and so we don't want to blame her too much for that either so the analogy i like to use is if you know you and your husband walk into a room, let's say he's cold and you're warm. Um, it's not like you guys are choosing to be cold or warm. It's just the way your body is reacting to the temperature. So you can't say, oh, you're so stupid for being cold or you're being annoying by being cold. It's just his body is reacting to the, the temperature different from yours. So we have to be aware that your daughter might just feel things a little bit more strongly and that we have to understand that and realize it's not her choice. And even if anything, we can have compassion for her. So imagine it, it just hurts her more than maybe it hurts you or hurts another child. So we have to, yeah. to try to approach that with compassion. Again, understanding that it is hard for you guys. I get it that when she reacts in those ways, um, it could be hard to maintain what I'm saying, this level of calm and compassion, because it's hard to hear her screaming and crying and tantruming. But trying to remember that, that it's not, She's choosing to be difficult. Is really the way she feels. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, okay, my my question is that: Do you think about? Um, um, do you think we should we should see a psychologist or a counselor or a social worker for her? At this stage, you can. You know, I always want to be careful with something like that when we're talking about, 
your child who's two and a half, and I'm hearing about her for about, you know, 20, maybe 30 minutes at the most right now, and trying to make a complete judgment and diagnosis, as much as I want to hopefully give you some guidance and give you some ideas, I don't want to give you anything definitive. So, of course, I'm sure you take her to pediatrician regularly, and so I would bring up all these concerns with him or her that you're dealing with, and they get to also see her, um, you know, face-to-face and and observe her and see what they're noticing, you know, it it seems like you're dealing with an anxious child, and I don't know what exactly a therapist could do yet. You and your husband could go to like a a family therapy or parents therapy to see if there's things that you can improve on, but Mm -hmm. usually play therapy at two and a half, I don't think. Maybe you can find people who will do that, but it's, it's less common. Maybe you can find some kind of therapy to do together. Um, but it doesn't seem like anything you've mentioned. And it depends on what these tantrums are like. If they're just, you know, she's crying and they're difficult, I get that. That's not something so um, out there or, you know, use the word normal, something that would be so abnormal to be concerning. But, um, you know, if they're so extreme and she's throwing herself on the floor, maybe even potentially hurting herself in some way, then it's more extreme. Yeah. Okay. So it's more of crying. Yeah things. You know, we keep, yeah, so it means she's very angry. We keep an eye on it always. You know, the baby just came a month ago. Um, so yeah. we want to um, be aware of that, that that's still a big trauma. So we want to give her some time. So I'd be patient, check in with her doctors. If you get really concerned, you can always go talk to a psychologist to get their opinion. And again, them observing her gets even a more fuller picture than what I'm getting. Um, But I would, as I mentioned before, keep in mind something, and this is for all parents, always remember your kid. We have to love them as they are and make sure they feel loved, lovable, and good as they are. So even if she is more shy or withdrawn than the other kids, we want to make sure she feels okay about it. So if she's socially anxious and wants to play but is afraid to play, we want to work with her on that. But if she is a kid who prefers being alone, we want to make sure feel more okay being solitary and being an introvert because there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. And, uh, we do have question. yeah, I would I make yes. it very quick cuz I'm actually almost over time but I want to give you a chance to say that. Go ahead. Okay, ju- just a quick question. Do you think about her English should be a speech therapist? I don't think so yet. I think it seems more like it's a discomfort with the language. She can speak, uh-huh. so it doesn't seem like speech therapy to me is the issue. It seems like more the comfort and it seem like seeming like a foreign language to her. So I would focus on, I try talking a little bit more English with her in the home, see if that makes her more comfortable. I just get the feeling your daughter is more kind of an anxious and, you know, she can easily feel uneasy. So it, it could be something related to that. So try that for a little bit, but it's not that she has a language issue. We're talking about the bilingual issue, which to me, seeing a speech therapist might not, it, it doesn't seem necessary at this point. All right. Thanks for your call. Have a great night. Be good to those two kids. Congratulations on the new one and wish you guys all the best. Thank you so much and thanks for your time. My pleasure. Have a good night. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you to our caller there and all the listeners uh, out there and to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulakwi. Have a wonderful night. 